Hi, I'm Pamelia Chia, founder of Singapore Noodles, writer of Wet Market to Table, and your host for the Singapore Noodles podcast, where I will be bringing you honest and insightful dialogue with people who care deeply about Singaporean food. If you'd like to see more content, go to sgpnoodles.com for recipes, video tutorials, and more. And be sure to check out our planner for the new year. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. C.Y. Chia and Shane Stanbridge are chefs and the founders of the S&M Vegan Pop-Up and Lion Dance Cafe. They draw inspiration from their combined Italian-Californian and Teochew-Singaporean roots and their experiences in the kitchens of restaurants in Paris, New York and the Bay Area to create exciting vegetable-focused dishes like crispy congee balls that have a thunder tea filling to glutinous rice with yuba wrapped in lotus leaves. Thanks for joining me, guys. Maybe let's start with uh, CY. I understand that you grew up in Singapore for a little while. I actually grew up in Singapore, born and raised in Singapore. My mother is French and my father is a Teochew Singaporean. I lived in Singapore until I was about eight or nine. And when my parents separated, my mom moved back to France and took me and my younger sister with her. So I lived there until I was 22, and then I moved to the U.S. That was eight years ago. So you were in Singapore for about eight to nine years. Did you have a very strong connection to the food? I did. So I grew up in one of these like large households. My father, he has seven sisters, so I have all these aunties. Um, I would spend all my time at the family house with my ama, my cousins, my sister, Everything was always kind of revolving around food, always like helping prepare the food. And then um, everyone gathers around the large round table with the lazy Susan to eat. Just very, um, a really central part of all the gatherings and just life as a family there. Even after I moved to France, I would still return to Singapore several times a year. So I was able to maintain that connection for a while. And Mm -hmm. uh, grow up not completely forgetting where I was from. I really identify mostly as Singaporean. That's still where I just feel the most at home. That's where all my family is, except for my mother. Mm. Um, Yeah, as soon as we moved to France, basically, it was just us all of a sudden. It was no longer this big familial atmosphere. And also, Singaporean food is really something that Um, when I cook it, it really like takes me back home. And when I'm in Singapore, I like to spend as much time as possible with my aunties and try to learn their recipes. And then I can come back home, cook these recipes and remember them. Mm. It's just really something um, precious and personal to me. And I really take pride in using um, my grandmother's quay molds and things like that that are really priceless to me. And I don't have the same connection to uh, my French heritage at all. When I moved to France, there were really not a lot of other Asians around me. And uh, I was kind of a curiosity. Since I was living with my mother, who is French, I wasn't getting continuation of like everything that I experienced in Singapore at home either. It was a complete, um, completely new way of living. It was just very lonely and I didn't understand back then like the significance of um, my culture and the cuisine of Singapore when I was a small kid. I was just trying to um, fit in, I think, like a lot of kids. After I had already started cooking professionally, I was very homesick. 
and I realized I can actually cook this food and it takes me back home. And when we started doing it for pop-ups, a lot of um, people, not even from Singapore, but just generally from East and Southeast Asia came out to try the food and said that it um, reminded them of home and was very moving to hear. So we decided to continue on that path. Mm -hmm. I was making a broth for the laksa and uh, we had a friend come over to the kitchen one time and he's Vietnamese, Vietnamese American. And so like making the broth that I put in with the rempa and the coconut and stuff. uh, So he, I offered him to taste the broth and he said, wow, that's exactly like the, like a soup that my mother would make for me when I was a kid. It's like, and he like started tearing up. It was like, Pretty unreal. <laughs> oh, it's crazy. So I was yeah. just wondering, um, you know, see why you talked about how you started being interested about your own food to kind of reclaim your heritage. So how exactly did you learn? Because Singaporean food is not exactly the most intuitive. In the very beginning, I was just kind of recreating from memory, just trying to get in the direction of something that was comforting enough. And then we went to see my family in Singapore and uh, my aunties were um, kind enough to show us how to uh, make several of their recipes and take us all around town, try all this food and just experiencing all that again as an adult and um, as a cook. Compared to when I was a kid, I was able to try something and make sense of the flavors and understand how it was made. It's really my aunts that taught us their recipes and uh, showed us the other food they love and encourage us to uh, keep practicing and learning. And for you, Shane, like how was that experience like being exposed to all these different dishes and techniques? Instagram hashtags are really amazing. So I follow like hashtag sambal, hashtag rempa. You really get a inside view of like how people are cooking in their kitchens. Also, it was just like an amazing experience, like cooking with the CY's ants. Uh, in their own kitchen, learning what CY's family views as like Chuchu food. They only cooked the food that they knew, uh, that they knew how to cook and things like Chui Kuei, learning how to make that and have it come out better than like you could find in like a hawker center. That was really great. And um, yeah, then there's also just foods that I just obsess over because of just childhood memories like whenever my father would go get me from uh, Qingxie always make a stop by Pisang Goreng stall and he would just get one for himself (laughs) and uh, eat it in the car next to me while it was super hot and uh, he would just like let me try one bite these are the dishes that like really urged me to um, start cooking food from back home again because I just was really in need of bringing back these memories. Food is so powerful in that way. You just smell a smell or you taste something and you're back to when you were a kid. I totally agree. You know, I find it very interesting that you use the word home to describe Singapore. And I think for, you know, people who move around a lot in their lives and are based in different places, I think the notion of home is always very fluid. Like um, after moving to... Australia, you know, suddenly Singapore feels like not so much of a home 
you know, you kind of feel like you're straddling two places. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you feel like where you're based is your home or do you still feel like your birth countries are your homes? That's a really good question. That's definitely something I've um, thought about a lot through the years, moving to France and then here. Um, and uh, all these places are home, really. It's um, When I'm back in Singapore, though, it's um, in the home where all my aunts live and gather. That is where I feel like um, I'm in truly a home in the communal sense, in the familial sense. Because that's where there's um, all these people who are my family, who I grew up with, who um, completely influenced who I am. My mother's home in France is this very special space where I get to be with her and my sister when uh, we're here. This is uh, the home that we're putting in the work to uh, have the right to call home basically day after day. Yeah, so I'm only a quarter Italian, but I always say that it's the loudest part of my family so that's how i identify i am a californian i guess and um, we met a couple italians a few years ago one of them asked me if i ever go back to italy like as if they saw me as like somebody who's validly italian and that i that can call italy a home country or a home place that was interesting because i'd never thought about it that way I've only been to Italy twice as an adult, but I do feel a certain sense of relief when I'm there. I feel like home is just, for me right now, it's it's Oakland, but it's always been California. So let's talk a little bit about your pop-up. I understand that you guys blend your roots, your heritage, and your experiences from California, Singapore, and Italy. You kind of filter that through the lens of you being in Oakland. So was that easy for you, finding your focus? Yeah, we were just kind of looking for a different outlet we were also trying to expand our breadth of knowledge uh, about vegan cooking. In the beginning, it was not very focused. Yeah. It was really just um, things we felt like eating but could not find as vegans. So it was a little bit of everything. Over time, we started to find our own voice, combining kind of our influences, our identities really just kind of happened spontaneously over time. Mm. So your food is kind of like an amalgamation of all your different backgrounds and heritage. Which part of that was really challenging for you? I know for Singaporean food, it's very meat-centric and there are a lot of meat products that go into making a delicious plate of, say, Hokkien mee or prawn mee. So what was the most challenging part of that? It's always a challenge to try to approach that in a way that's um, going to be conducive to creating a dish that eats similarly even if the flavors and textures are not exactly the same. For example, when we make our laksa, we were thinking, okay, obviously we can't put cockles in it, we can't put prawns in it, so what can we put in it that's going to add to the eating experience and uh, add texture and flavor without just putting like a mock meat in it? So we had these beautiful kabocha squash and we just like roasted kabocha and it was like just so sweet and tender and it just like melts in your mouth and we just put that on there along with um, some sauteed yuba with a lot of white pepper some tofu puffs herbs we just ended up with a bowl that wasn't trying to be a fake seafood laksa 
mm. something that was a vegan laksa in its own right. Basically, how we construct the dish is recalling walking through a wet market in Singapore and thinking about what is available there. And then we don't necessarily try to make actual like dishes that you could find in Singapore. We'll make like an eggplant dish. And as I'm making it, I can like draw like a direct comparison to like, oh, this is actually how I would make an Italian eggplant dish, uh, fried marinated eggplant, cooked eggplant that's then marinated in something bright and acidic with fresh herbs and um, alliums like garlic and onions and things like that. I felt like I was making an Italian dish, but with Singaporean flavors. I think I just can't help but like think about things that I love and grew up eating and just apply a certain filter to like what I recall at like a Singaporean wet market. Speaking of filters, did you find it easy to translate your Italian heritage into your pop-up, which is vegan? Because the impression that I have of Italian food is that it's quite meat-centric. Yeah, I mean, Italian-American food is really heavy on meat and dairy because when Italian immigrants came here, they found that everything was available and it was cheap and they could make more money and they could buy all these meats and cheeses and things like that. They came from Cucina Povera, which is the poor kitchen, which is like a lot of wheat, a lot of beans, a lot of vegetables. I've been trying to learn more about that stuff because, yeah, my, my family, they're Italian-American. They're pretty assimilated at this point. Yeah, they're heavy on the meat for sure. I've been to Italy twice now as an adult, and it's just been really interesting seeing a lot of the food that Italians cook is accidentally vegan. Pasta pomodoro. Tomato sauce. Yeah. So it's just like peak season tomatoes, basil, and really good olive oil and a bit of salt. There's Roman fried artichokes where they kind of open it up like a flour, a bit of lemon and salt. That style of cooking where it's really not salty, but it's so full of flavor. And a lot of the times just happens to be to be vegan. I've never tried this kind of uh, Italian food that is very vegetable focused. Looking on YouTube or TV, you know, you don't really see these dishes. I mean, everybody wants to seek out like maybe the celebration dishes or like the heavy, the rich dishes, the ones that are going to like impress people. But on a day-to-day basis, Italians don't eat a whole lot of meat. Like they might eat meat every day, but it's really just like thin slices of cured meat or like I was saying with like a little bit of anchovy in a dish or something like that. Similarly to how CY's ants may cook, like where there's all these dishes and maybe like the celery is just is stir fried with some lapchong dried shrimp and some greens or something like that. So let's talk a little bit about the food that you make at the pop-up. How do these ideas come about? There's kind of two different types of food we make. Um, Some of it is very transparently referencing a Singaporean dish like the laksa or like um, whenever we replicate some of my family's kueh. Yeah, when we do chakwetiao, things like that. Uh, So these dishes... They start with the idea of like, oh, how can we make a vegan version of this? We start off with like a certain idea for the ingredients. Every time we make it, we'll maybe tweak something until we find a result that we like enough. Over time, develop something that really becomes our own. 
And then the other type of dish we make is something Shane was alluding to, which is something that is not a direct reference to um, a Singaporean dish. For example, we'll go to the market and we'll see um, okra, ladyfinger, and um, we'll just decide to make a dish with that. So we'll see what else there is at the market we want to use with it. We saw some uh, roselle leaf mm. and some uh, beautiful tomatoes. So we um, made a roselle leaf sambal to dress basically the tomato and grilled okra salad. And um, we're very lucky to have a beautiful fresh tofu factory in Oakland. We had their soy milk at the kitchen, so we made some uh, fresh tofu to put on there too. Oh, wow. These are the dishes that just like kind of come together more on the spot because we just see something that we want to cook and that inspires us. My God, I saw that Roselle leaf sambal on your menu and I was so intrigued because not a lot of Singaporeans know how to use this um, ingredient. Right. Yeah, you have to, it wilts a lot. You have to pick just the, just the leaf, none of the stem at all. Otherwise, it's tough. But um, yeah, and then you have to really cut it thin so that it kind of breaks down a bit more. Yeah, it was like a nice sourness. Like we didn't need to add like lime juice to it. So how do you know about this ingredient? Was that something that you came across in Singapore? So the market near us is the Chinatown Farmer's Market. And there's all these um, Chinese and Southeast Asian farms that happen to sell all these amazing uh, products. So if there's something that um, I recognize from Singapore, but I didn't happen to use there that I'm not familiar with, we'll just like ask them yeah what it is taste it and then just decide what to do with it based on the taste at a singaporean market there's different fresh chilies and there's different dried chilies and it's a completely different set of breeds that you could find over there as opposed to here here mexican chilies all the way like there's so many different types of mexican chilies there's some dishes that end up tasting like a little bit a mexican flavor just because of the different the chilies that we have access to like we're using uh chile morita which is uh smoked dried uh ripe jalapeno so it's got a really smoky flavor and it's really delicious but using that in uh in a sambal is really special it's like it's like smoky really fun i guess you could say that our food um is the way it is because of who we are but also where we are i feel that that's how new dishes come about that's how new cuisines are formed by kind of eradicating those boundaries that people place around cuisines and cultures and food so what do you guys feel about cancel culture going on is that something that you guys are ever worried about because you guys are blending different cuisines and cultures together fusion has this connotation uh to me but not only me it's a broad conversation happening here as well of these uh, white chefs something that started in the 70s white chefs who were making a conscious decision to misappropriate ingredients from cultures they did not understand in order to um, create something that was that was theirs and that was gimmicky and that was hip at the time. And basically it was an other way for them to um, diversify their cooking but still keeping people of color out of their kitchens. And fusion today still has that connotation here. There is this power structure, this power imbalance between the two parties, the parties that's taking and the party that is uh, taken from. What we do is just, we cook our own food. I'm Singaporean, why can't I have a Singaporean restaurant? 
I don't think we're trying to make anybody else's cuisine. We're just trying, we're just using what's available to us being where we are. Yeah, our food is um, for us the way through which we can tell our stories. And uh, for me as a person of color in the vegan world here that is, although very diverse, still like seen as largely white dominated, it's a way for me to um, gain visibility. Also, Singaporean food has, ne- has always been fluid. It has always just been considered Singaporean because it was cooked by Singaporeans, not because of what was being cooked specifically. So I think um, the food we make at the restaurant is an extension of that, where um, if even if it's not, um, even if my sambal is made with a chili that I can find here versus a chili I can find back home, well, I'm still Singaporean cooking it. It's a Singaporean sambal. Mm. And um, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I don't want there to be gatekeepers there because I think for Singaporeans to... Um, If a Singaporean decides that, oh no, Singaporean food is only allowed to be a certain way, that's pretty hypocritical. Yeah, I agree. Mm, But do you feel that um, only a Singaporean person has the right to cook Singaporean food? I think that only a Singaporean person cooking it makes it Singaporean because there's not really such thing as um, one Singaporean cuisine. So much of the food comes from Indonesia or Malaysia or India, even China. So it's really hard to define exactly what it is unless you're cooking it because you're a Singaporean person and it's an homage to your country. Mm. So if one of your customers or guests come up to you and ask you about what exactly is Singaporean food, how would you explain that to them? So I usually start with explaining to them where it is because a lot of people even with crazy rich agents they still don't really grasp where it is i'll just like explain where it is what it is and then i'll tell them that the food there is um, a mix of all the influences of the people who live there so malaysian indonesian chinese and more and um, that is singaporean food so you'll find a a lot of uh, acidity and brightness from calamansi you'll find heat from chilies you'll find a lot of things that you'll recognize from um, Chinese food as well, such as um, noodles, rice. That's usually how I explain it to people. So let's talk about creating vegetable-focused meals. This is something that I feel really interested in because when I was growing up, vegetables were always kind of like an afterthought. So do you have any tips on how to make a balanced meal that is vegetable-focused and also how to make vegetables delicious? I mean, I think... Eat the rainbow is uh, a good um, way to go. Just trying to be conscious of having variety and not just eating the same thing all the time because I think a lot of people make the mistake of like finding the one vegetable that they like and then just eating nothing but that. Also treating a vegetable as if it's a piece of meat. Honestly, if you take like a piece of cauliflower and you sear it as if it's a steak or something and then braise it or finish it in the oven or something like that and try to infuse some flavor into it, then it can be a really exciting vegetable. Smoking and grilling, roasting, searing are all ways of like making vegetables really exciting uh, without really a lot of effort. 
So I love what you're talking about, you know, treating vegetables like a piece of meat, because I feel that um, when I first started cooking vegetables, I was only taking a few minutes making stir fries. And it was only after I decided to spend more time, you know, invest more time into cooking them that they became more delicious. So uh, I would love to ask you, what about beans? Because this is something that only came into my radar uh, recently. I was reading up on Blue Zones and it talked about how important uh, beans really are in our diets. Uh, but growing up, there was never ever beans on the table. And when you talk about hawker food, the only bean dish is probably kacang pool. Um, so can you teach us how we can make beans delicious and how can we incorporate beans into our diets? Uh, you can make tofu with them. <laughs> I mean, it's missing like a lot of the fiber from a soybean, uh, but tempeh is actually a really good whole food. Just tempeh goreng, it's yeah. really good. But yeah, uh, beans, it's true what you're saying. I don't remember really eating beans just in, in bean form. Yeah. Always uh, as tofu or soy milk. Sometimes it's like mung beans or red beans in desserts. Yep. Yeah, not so much in savory food. But uh, what we really like to do when we're cooking beans is um, tempering some spices or curry leaves in coconut oil and just pouring that over the dish in the end. Oh, that's kind of like dal tatka, right? When you make a when you make a tempered oil and you pour it over the dish. Yeah, yeah, that's a great um, that's a great easy technique. And uh, I think people who try to eat more vegetables, grains, and beans have to not be afraid of that, because that's definitely a way to add a lot of flavor in food. Yes, for sure. I think fat makes you feel so much more satisfied. And I think people always vilify fat, but it doesn't always have to be the case. I mean, like what you talked about, uh, coconut oil, I think that's a very, very healthy substitute for vegetable oil. Um, so apart from meat's fat content, I believe that another reason why it's so irresistible is the high amounts of umami that, that is naturally present in meat. So I would love to know what are some of your favorite plant-based ingredients that makes your food so delicious. So one of my favorite ingredients is uh, preserved plums. Ah. It's very, very similar to the Japanese umeboshi. Um, and another ingredient that I love is taochiu. What are some of your favorite ingredients? We actually use taochiu quite a bit too. Yeah. Um, as well as, uh, yeah, soy sauce. Is amazing. Um, a lot of aromatics. Also, just um, not in terms of ingredients, but cooking techniques. Like all the cooking techniques that Shane listed, they that consist in like browning the vegetable. That um, basically brings out um, a ton of umami and sweetness in the vegetable through caramelization, well, mayorization. Yeah. <laughs> actually. Yeah. Um, but yeah, also yeah. So smoking. Uh, vegetables or you know, tofu or mushrooms um, that evokes a sensation of like eating meat or something because it's that association that smoke flavor has with with meat. So what are some of the ways to get smokiness in your food? Definitely use a wok but um, sometimes we'll just use a smoker which smoking things at a low temperature to really be able to uh, get the smoke to stick. Um, but otherwise, uh, using things like smoked paprika or that chili that I was talking about, chili morita or chipotle chilies, infusing 
things like uh, dried mushrooms or dry uh, sea vegetable into into dishes is a great way to to get umami into a dish. When you say dry um, sea vegetables, you mean uh, things like kombu? Yeah, like kombu or other, like there's dulse um, and there's uh, laver, like that sea vegetable that's sort of dried into mm -hmm. a cake. For instance, when we make our fried peanuts, we just throw a handful of dulse like in at the end, and that kind of just toasts the dulse a bit and um, brings out the umami flavor. And so we find that if we throw that in, we don't need to use something like MSG. It really boosts the umami. Yeah, seaweed is so great. Do you feel like your culinary career has really impacted the way that um, you look at vegetables now and inform some of the techniques that you use at the pop-up? My first cooking job was at a restaurant in Paris called L'Arpège. Um, oh, they're really big on vegetable cookery, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that taught me so much in terms of what's possible using vegetables. It really taught me to um, look at vegetables and see potential instead of just seeing a side and um, yeah just all the ways that they cooked vegetables like um, smoking them or uh, salt crusting and baking whole vegetables or keeping them raw and slicing them very thinly like a carpaccio. Shane actually worked at a raw restaurant that also taught you like a lot of ways to use vegetables too yeah i mean basically it's just dehydrate all the vegetables but um <laughs> uh there is like cy said it's like there's like uh potential in so many vegetables one of our most successful dishes was making um general so's brussels sprouts which is taking brussels sprouts and treating it as if it's just a, a piece of chicken that we then coat in like a sweet and acidic spicy sauce people that would not eat brussels sprouts at a bar they're sitting there ordering more uh and then also just looking for really good produce what what are your thoughts on marinating vegetables do you feel like it has the same uh effect as it does on meat oh it's great it has the same effect really yeah um we had a whole roasted cauliflower dish that dish we first blanched with cauliflower in a brine and then we uh, marinated it by covering it completely in a spice rub then we roasted it just until it was fork tender that cauliflower was just so full of flavor and the outside was like nicely charred. Yeah, you just get great flavor penetration that way. Yeah, especially with things like broccoli or cauliflower that have like all the, like between the florets, there's all this space for a marinade to penetrate. Um, as well as mushrooms are also very porous. So like they'll really take up a, a marinade using a hot marinade, like a hot brine or something like that definitely helps aids in that uh, penetration in, in vegetables. What about salt crusting? What exactly does it impart to the vegetables? It's another uh, fun way to really infuse flavor all the way into the core of the vegetable. And uh, you also get a really um, even, smooth, uh, cooked through, like in the case of a beet, 
where uh, it's just like completely evenly soft and with the salt it's just like all this like uniform texture basically definitely want to do that with a large vegetable because if you salt crust like a carrot or something then it's maybe going to be a bit too salty it's just going to get salty (laughs) apart from using salt um, what are some other ways that we can push different flavors into vegetables so the brining method we used to put a lot of spices in there as well Mm. so that was a vegetable that's really like flavored throughout not just salted And yeah, you can definitely in the if you want to salt bake something, you can definitely incorporate some whole spices or like lightly cracked spices. You can also um, add aromatics when you're smoking, roasting, or grilling your vegetables. Yeah, like you can um, wrap your vegetables in fig leaf or pandan leaf or banana leaves when you're grilling or roasting them, and that also gives it a nice fragrance. Ooh, have you guys done that for any of your dishes? We make a seitan. We wrap the seitan in a lotus leaf uh, before cooking it. And then when once it's done cooked, we finish it by putting it on a grill and the lotus leaf sort of burns and infuses the, the seitan with some pleasantly charred flavors and aromas. Yeah, but you could do that with any vegetable as well. Yeah. Oh my god, that sounds so mind-blowing. I don't think I've had any vegetable or vegetable-based product that has been wrapped in a leaf and grilled and kind of um, smoked in that way. Um, I feel like it's very, very inventive what you guys are doing. Were you guys overwhelmed by the kind of responses that you were getting from the pop-up? Oh yeah, definitely. We're constantly surprised by it, honestly. Yeah, because yeah. vegan food has always been this thing that was just its own thing. It was never brought up in any sort of discussion uh, about food broadly. Like it was always just... It's a niche. Yeah, there is just like the vegan category. There's food, there's real food, and then there's vegan food. But now I think people are starting to see that vegan food is food. Yeah, we're lucky that there's a a lot of people around us who are not seeing us as just being a part of that subcategory, who are allowing us to transcend that category. Yes, I really feel that you guys are so amazing and you guys are doing so much to kind of elevate vegan food and to treat vegetables with so much respect and to do what you guys are doing, blending your own heritage into the food. I feel that that is really, really inspiring and I learned so much from both of you. Oh, well, we appreciate it. Um, I was really excited when I found out about your Instagram. I love what you do. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really, really... I'm so grateful. Thank Thank you. you.